What do you think? Have we reached 10 yet? You can count at so many different speeds. I'm supposed to count to 10. This is a bit, little behind the, the curtain view. I'm supposed to count to 10 once uh, the producer goes away. Um, I think we're there. I think we're at 10. So welcome to uh, another Dispatch Live. Thanks for joining us this Tuesday night and another election night. A lot going on on Capitol Hill. Um, we're busy at work preparing the morning dispatch for tomorrow. Price has been covering the Supreme Court in Capitol Hill. Um, and I've not been sleeping. So we've called we've called a bit of an audible tonight. Um, Haley, who was going to join us on what was to have been a Hill-focused uh, discussion is feeling a little bit under the weather. So we thought we'd take advantage of the fact that Andrew is just back from Georgia. Um, he helped with the morning dispatch item that I'm sure all of you read today, previewing the vote that is um, now being counted in Georgia. And uh, we'll get his thoughts about what he saw on the ground. Uh, and we will include Esther and price and talk about a little bit of their reporting as well and i have tons of thoughts oh you know what i didn't do i'm gonna have to text my kid to see if they can bring my notes i have notes on for our discussion on congress and what's going on on capitol hill because i talked to some smart people a lot smarter than i am about this and uh they can help us guide our discussion um and as always we'll take questions. So please feel free to shoot them our way. Um, we'll probably seed a few of them, uh, take a few of them throughout the discussion and then load up on the rest at the end. So any of the topics that we've mentioned here, uh, in addition to other topics that are on your mind, anything about the dispatch, anything about Andrew's liquor collection, uh, it's all fair game. Um, Andrew, welcome back from Georgia. What did you hey, see? Thanks. What did you see? What are you expecting tonight? Uh, well, if we're talking about expectations, um, I think everybody's got pretty much the same one right now, which has not been uh, all that reliable in any of the past elections that I can recall, but but maybe will be tonight, which is that uh, in the last election of, of this cycle, this runoff in Georgia between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker, uh, that Warnock's per, uh, expected to win. He's expected to win uh perhaps by a couple points, um, perhaps by a couple more than a couple points. Um, it's not uh, it's not open and shut at all. Um, it's, you know, Georgia's a purple to red state. Republicans won uh, basically every other state. I think every other actually statewide office this cycle. Um, but uh, I heard my baby there and she uh, she yanked me out of my train of thought. But um, Walker has had a lot of problems as a candidate. Um, he's had gaff after gaff and all sorts of things dredged up from his past that have hurt him in one way and another. Um, in the uh, general election last month, he lost by a handful of votes, some 40,000 votes, something like that. Um, and and a, a big part of that was, you know, you had a lot of people who voted for all the other Republicans on the ticket who then didn't, you know, were kind of like, ah, I don't know about Herschel Walker. So they've, they've basically- A huge gap. Been, Can we just pause there for a second? I mean, a huge gap between, it was, was 200,000 votes uh, between Governor Brian Kemp, who won re-election, and Herschel Walker, the Republican Senate candidate, correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and you know, going into the primary, uh, the 
kind of expectation was that it was perhaps Kemp who was going to struggle to unite, you know, the entire Republican Party. And the reason for that being that he had had um, such a knockdown drag out fight with Donald Trump over over the 2020 election. It was like, is the MAGA base going to turn out for him? Um, It turned out the MAGA base did still turn out and vote for Brian Kemp. And he also got to vacuum up. Um, you know, more moderate Republicans, but also just independents uh, who who had seen him kind of doing battle with Donald Trump and were like, oh, I guess this guy must be kind of, you know, a a maverick straight shooter. Anyway, he yes, 200,000 is the number of votes more that Kemp got than than Walker. So the 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 whole story of this runoff essentially has been can Herschel Walker find a way to rethread that needle to to say, okay, like, I lost all these people before. Do I have any way now to, to bring them back online? And he's been aided uh, in these this month of campaigning by a murderer's row of uh, Republican figures. You know, tons and tons of senators and, and congressmen have been coming down to campaign with him. Brian Kemp, who did not do all that much with him, uh, kind of scrupulously avoided doing much campaigning with Herschel Walker during the general election, uh, has been going kind of all out uh, for him, like much, much more so than a lot of people expected. He's done fundraising for him and campaign events with him. And he's cut ads, uh, you know, where he's talking to camera, talking about how you need to vote for Herschel Walker. He's he's got his whole 150 person strong ground game out there, kind of knocking doors and making phone calls in support of Herschel Walker. I mean, it's really kind of a remarkable showing from Kemp. Um, But so that's the question. That's the question is basically can you drag some of those moderates who, you know, as recently as a month ago, were like, thanks, but no thanks about Herschel uh, back to that camp. Um, early results, Warnock's in the lead. I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I, I have no insights as to which votes those are or, or you know, what they portend. But uh, but but so know. massive early votes right now, as we are speaking, uh, the tally looks to be, according to The New York Times. Sorry, I just had it up and I now have. Lost it. Fifty-four and a half percent to forty-five and a half percent with Warnock in the lead. Much of that lead is explained by the fact that there was a massive early vote. The early vote was we obviously couldn't, we can't see who people voted for in the early vote tally in the days leading up to the election, but it was very heavily tilted toward Democrats. Um, there were some eighty thousand voters, uh, I believe, who did not vote in the election in November, which suggests uh, a number of new voters, but a a huge turnout for Democrats in this early vote. That's often the case. That's those are likely the majority of the votes that are coming in early. So it's it does. It does sound like that's built in to the coverage here. I just clicked on the New York Times needle, which still says toss up, even though that's like a you know, 10 point, nine point lead. So I think we'll look at this, this lead dwindle over the course of the evening um, and it'll get to a closer race. But I would say, I mean, and, and Andrew, I'm interested in your thoughts on on this. You're talking to Republican strategists uh, over the past couple of weeks. I couldn't find anybody who thought Herschel Walker was was likely to win. And uh, I also couldn't find anybody who thought Herschel Walker ought to win. On the merits. And again, talking to Republican strategists, uh, these are people who would rather not have Raphael Warnock in the Senate, um, in some cases in the Senate with them. They would they would rather not continue to be his colleagues. But nobody was excited about 
Herschel Walker, at least in sort of the professional Republican class. You were on the ground. You went to a a Walker rally, which was notable because there weren't many Walker rallies. He didn't do much in public, which is an interesting way to campaign, although becoming more and more prevalent. And you talked to a lot of voters. Uh, Would you say that the voters that you talked to were enthusiastic about Herschel Walker? Did they want Herschel Walker because of his debate performances and the things he said to persuade them that he'd be the best candidate? So right off the bat, you got to you got to stipulate if you're going to a Herschel Walker rally, uh, you're already selecting for a certain clientele. Right. Um, I mean, a lot of these people were not people who were showing up uh, because showing up to this rally was going to affect their vote in any way. A lot of them had already voted. Um, They were you know, they were banked for Herschel already. I will say that, you know, everybody I talked to, it's a completely different race um, from the point of view of almost everybody down there. Uh, than from the point of view of you know your your, your strategists and your people who take this this uh, twenty thousand foot view, it might not be a more accurate view. Um, but you have a lot of people uh, you know who who are like yes, you know we find all of these allegations of the million you know pick your pick your favorite Herschel Walker allegation. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of stuff that you know we don't know how to think about it. Uh, we find it all troubling. Um, at the same time, the media lies about Republicans and and you know basically just that kind of uh, sort of posture of epistemic anxiety where you uh, where, where you just feel like you don't know what to believe, but you know that you are a Republican voter. And so you're going to go out and pull the lever for that guy. Uh, there's also a good number of voters, I think, who who like him. I mean, I, I, I it is certainly not uh, people who are overrepresented in that 200,000 number that we talked about before, which who are, who are kind of key to this runoff. Um, but when you're on I mean, when you're on the ground and you're not just hearing kind of the soundbite of the most insane sounding thing he said, because he does say some insane sounding things. Um, he does. I mean, he, he has a certain charisma. He is I mean, you know, giant megawatt smile. He seems very confident. He has the kind of inspirational, if embellished significantly backstory. Um, and, and, you know, talks a, a, a really good game about a thing that a, a certain kind of voter cares about a lot, which is just this notion that America is a good place that's getting kind of a, a bad rap from the left, like, like that kind of people who feel, um, you know, sort of personally uh, affronted and 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 saddened um, when they hear, you know, talk of systemic racism and things like that, as if as if you were hearing somebody, you know, say mean things about a friend of yours or something like that. Um, and I think that that's kind of the anxiety, or not the anxiety, that's the energy kind of of the of the media and Herschel Walker supporter, the guys who are enthusiastic about him. They're 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 kind of MAGA adjacent, but they're not really MAGA. They're not the core MAGA voter. They're more than anything. They're kind of social conservatives, right? They're rural. They care a lot, a lot, a lot about abortion. Uh, and, you know, the, the whole kind of wokeness thing is is getting up there in terms of like another. These are thing. these are Walker supporters care yes. to quote you a lot, a lot, a lot about abortion. I, I, you know, maybe don't put that on the back of the box or anything. Um, but yes, I think that's true. Uh, I, I mean, that far and away, the 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 kind of single issue that uh, going all the way back into the into the general election voters, I'd talk to at these things, you know, I'm I, well, the fir- first and foremost, I'm pro-life is kind of the, the thing. And he was I mean, he he ran hard, hard, hard to the right of pretty much any other Senate candidate in America on that issue, basically calling for a national ban on the practice. Um, which, you know, has even outstripped what a lot of these social conservative organizations have been calling for. Um, so it's, hey, I, uh, I, you know, I've kind of just been rambling. I, I, I feel like I, I don't know where I'm, where I'm going anymore. So I'll, I'll let, I'll let you, I'll let you pick it up again. A little bit like Herschel Walker in some of his speeches, actually. Well, like, that's, edit, the, that's the editorial. He would, he would just pivot to some other completely unrelated thing and like, 
just kind of keep going with the big smile and, and well, or, there, or Joe certain, Biden or Joe yeah, Biden. Yeah, but to make I mean, bipartisan. These are verbal cul-de-sacs and they're yeah, not really sure what they're doing there. There's a certain charisma to that, to never really letting yourself wrong foot yourself and just kind of. Are you saying that about yourself it. now or are you no, saying, I'm saying that I lack Walker that. and Biden? I lack that. I had to throw it back to you because I don't have the gift of gab in that way. Um, we're going to come back to to this race because we're going to keep updating throughout the course of the night. And I already see that we have several questions, including some questions that seem to have anticipated the story that Andrew has prepared for the website tomorrow. And we'll take you a little bit behind the curtain on how we do that. It's a weird thing to write a piece for tomorrow when you've spent several days there. We don't know the results. Um, you pre-write some of it. We'll, we'll get into some questions about that. Uh, first, I want to jump to... Price. Price, you've spent some time reporting on Moore v. Harper, uh, Supreme Court uh, hearing arguments in this case that uh, is looking at the North Carolina, uh, North Carolina Supreme Court, looking whether it has the power to to knock down uh, the legislature's gerrymandered uh, districts. It's a complicated case. Um I wonder if you can try to explain it in its simplest terms for us. Sure. Uh, and I will say, again, a little peek behind the curtain. I have an article on this that is going up tomorrow. So people can read about it there, too. And David and Sarah have covered this on advisory opinions. If you want to dig more into the legal weeds. Um, I was struck when I started digging into this yesterday and today um, of how just as a sort of non-expert just observer, person who follows the news, there's this mixture of familiarity and novelty here where like North Carolina congressional districts have gone before the Supreme Court a lot um, going back years and years. And that has involved racial gerrymandering where the Supreme Court struck down a, a racial gerrymander that was discriminating against black voters. It involved the Supreme Court saying we actually are not going to get involved in, you know, uh, disputes over partisan gerrymandering in terms of looking at the maps. Well, now they've come back and they're not necessarily looking at the maps, but they're looking at the process. And so to explain it in the simplest terms, after the 2020 census, North Carolina has to redraw its congressional districts. And again, these are for federal office for Congress, not state level. Um, and so the, the state legislature redraws those lines. The in the legislature is Republican. The Democrat majority state Supreme Court says ah, that's a partisan gerrymander. We say that's unconstitutional in the state of North Carolina. You should redraw it. So the legislature brings them a new map. And again, the state Supreme Court says, no, it's partisan gerrymander. We supposed to, we're supposed to have free and fair elections. You can't do that. Uh, and eventually you're sort of running out of time for the midterms. And so the court tells a, a team of special masters, a term that I learned about only because of the Mar-a-Lago story this year, <laughs> they get to draw the map. So it gets out of the hands of the legislature, special masters do it. Um, and now, the North Carolina state legislature is coming before the Supreme Court and saying the North Carolina Supreme Court, it was unconstitutional for them to do have anything to do with the drawing of the map uh, because we actually adhere to the independent state legislature doctrine. And this is the thing that's new that most people not heard about until 2020. And was this a new argument by the legislature or had they been making this all along? No, this is new. They were not, I don't, as far as I could tell, they were not making this argument pre-2020. Okay. 
but post 2020, I mean, yeah, it sounded like the the court sort of signaled in an emergency docket thing, like, oh, we might want to address this an independent state legislature thing, which it started floating around when Trump was, you know, trying to mess with the electoral college and stuff. Uh, so now the state legislature is saying because the U.S. Constitution says the time, place, and manner of elections has to be determined by the legislature thereof of the different states, basically, at least when it comes to federal elections, the state legislature of North Carolina is not bound by the state constitution, which then raises the question, well, state legislature exists because of the state constitution, but you have to reckon with the fact that the constitution says uh, the legislature thereof. So it's a whole complicated mess, and I've, re I've gone on about it too long at this point, uh, and people, there's a lot of good reading people can find on this, but it matters because um if if the court were to rule which people think is pretty unlikely uh that like full in on this isl theory um just a lot of not all but a lot of election oversight and judicial review would would sort of disappear when the people who are on the other side the people who, who think the court should not rule that way it's fair to say that they have fairly strong views and dismiss this as preposterous this is absurd the brennan center at, at new york university for instance weighed in very heavily this is a crazy theory they're talking about illegal things is that is that the tone of the of the argument against oh let me see i'm trying to well so yeah the i was looking at some brennan center stuff earlier it's just hard to sometimes keep track of like who's who's on what side here but basically the yes the the brennan center submitted a brief but also plenty of other people including a lot of Republicans and conservative judges have submitted briefs as well. So the Brennan Center, they, they would say like, oh my gosh, like, you know, ranked choice voting is going to disappear in Alaska if if the court were to rule in favor of the state legislature. I don't know if that's true. Um, I'm sure there'd be a lot of litigation about that. Yeah, I'm not sure anybody knows if that's yeah, true. Yeah, and so honestly. I, you know, I think pe people should be careful about speculating like, oh, all of this, these terrible things we know for sure would happen. Um, but it is fair to say that it would be, uh, disruptive. Um, I, Ben Ginsburg, a well-known Republican, uh, election lawyer, he briefed reporters today and I listened in on that call and he, it was all on the record and he was talking about, um, if the court were to side with Moore, who's the speaker of the North Carolina House of Representatives, ironically, the Supreme Court would then start to get a ton of requests to review, like election map drawing processes, uh, which is something going back to that 29 Rucho versus Common Cause, at least Justice Roberts has been trying to avoid and sort of push back towards the states because it, you know, you, um, just it's not advantageous for the court to be drawn into partisan stuff. Um, and right. so it would be ironic. Time consuming, if nothing else, I mean, depending yeah. on what the court decided to, to, to take. Right. Um, so there are a lot of pitfalls, uh, and Ben Ginsburg, when I asked him about, you know, is it this binary between like this, like really strict literalists, like reading the constitution or total chaos, he did point me to not as the only answer, but a potential somewhere that's not those extremes, an article by Will Bode, um, and Michael McConnell in the Atlantic sort of talking about 
a way to muddle through in the middle there. Um, esteemed, esteemed conservative center right legal uh, scholars. Yes, uh, yeah. who have been advised. At least Will Bode has been an advisory opinions guest. So you can go read from them and not me. I'm I'm not an expert. I'm just trying to make sense of it myself. But it's, no, but you you it's, did it's, a good job of helping us understand. Yeah. In I mean, I've I've read. I haven't. I don't know if I've read that piece in the Atlantic. Although I think I did. But I've I've read their arguments. Sometimes they're easy and accessible, and quite often they're not. And I think you did yep. a good job of explaining to us what's going on here. I have one more question uh, to you before we turn to Esther and oil price caps yep. and tomorrow's TMD. Where are we in the process right now? The process of this uh, of the court of the court. Yes. What, what what is the court doing with this? They, they they have oral arguments tomorrow, and I couldn't oral arguments tomorrow beyond that. So oral arguments will signal a lot, obviously, about you know where where the justices might be leaning. I mean, um, everybody cautions you not to pay too much attention to the kinds of questions that you get from the justices, and don't read into them, and don't 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 draw conclusions based on what they seem to be asking or might be hinting about their own right. views on this. But actually, lately, it's been a pretty good guide to where things are going to end up. Yeah. And you've, uh, yeah, I mean, you've been in journalism long enough. Like, people say a lot of things that, oh, you shouldn't pay attention to that story. It's not news, but then it ends up being news and we cover it. So Correct. Correct. So speaking of stories we should pay attention to, um, Esther, you've been working on on uh, explaining this uh, this price cap uh, that these European nations, Western nations have imposed on Russia sixty dollars. Um, what does it mean? What do we need to know about it? And um, how significant is it in your view? Maybe that's the best place to start. I mean, this this seems like a big deal. Is it a big deal? And if it is, why is it a big deal? It is a big deal. Congratulations. You've hit the nail on the head on that one. Um, part of the reason it's a big deal is just because it's established this mechanism of, of working together that potentially has bigger ramifications down the road. But it's also, I mean, it's also a, a pretty big deal right now. So what's going on here is these Western countries that have been sanctioning Russia out the wazoo since it invaded Ukraine, uh, you know, looked around and said, okay, We've we've done a lot of great sanction work, but Russia is still making like 20 billion a month on oil revenues. And that is a lot of money. We would like to decrease that. On the other hand, we really like using Russian oil. It's important to our economies and we don't want to just take it off the market. So what can we do to have our cake and eat it too? And the idea that they came up with is this price cap. And so the G7, the European Union and Australia have agreed uh companies in our nations it's fine if you ship or insure or you know handle this russian seaborne crude oil but only if it's bought at or below 60 bucks a gallon if it's above that you're in trouble with us um and so the effect of this it's not a ban and it's not saying that these companies can't handle this oil it's just setting this sort of price cap um, and, uh, one guy I was reading, Edward Fishman, who has helped the state department in the past, uh, helped them design sanctions on Russia. He compared it to like a toll road where, you know, if you want to go on the road, you have to be under this $60 fee. Um, except <laughs> the metaphor breaks down a little bit because 90% of roads in the world aren't toll roads. Um, but about 90% of oil tanker insurers are based 
in London or, or they rely on capital from London. So it has a huge impact on the market. Um, these tankers need insurance for things like oil spills or collisions that can cost insane amounts of money to clean up. Um, so again, it's, it's immediate impact on the market hasn't been huge. And there's a few reasons for that. One of them is just that they've been talking about this for months. It didn't surprise anybody when this finally happened. Another is that it's a fairly conservative number that they've chosen. So Brent crude, uh, which is a you know commonly used benchmark for oil, is trading like 20 bucks above Russian crude generally, it sounds like. And Russian crude has been at about $60. It's it's been moving around, but um, I believe Monday it closed at like 62 Russian crude. So you can see how the $60 cap is not that far below that. Um, and, and that's been frustrating to some countries. So Poland, Estonia, and of course, as you would expect, Ukraine uh, wanted this level to be set a lot lower. They're like, we should be doing $30 a barrel. So we really uh, take a knife to their profits. Uh, other countries wanted it to be higher. They wanted it to be in the 70s a barrel. So this is kind of a compromise number that they've landed on. And, and the U.S. has has been very supportive of this number, basically, again, for this idea that we don't want to or they don't want to just incentivize Russia to turn off the tap entirely and say, OK, fine, we're not going to sell you any oil because they do want the oil on the market. So it's it's less of, uh, you know, exploding Russian profits and more just sort of trying to shave them off the top. And we'll see how well that works. I mean, commodities commodities traders have a long track record of happily wriggling their way around all sorts of sanctions regimes uh, right. if there is money to be made. And there definitely is when it comes to oil. So I, I would expect to see Russia become a little bit like um, Venezuela or Iran in that there's a lot of money to be made. And so people are finding ways around it. Already, there have been reports from industry analysts of Russia or Russia affiliated com companies um, buying up tankers, uh, particularly like old ones that would normally be mothballed by now. So they're maybe like 20 years old um, to start to ship some of this stuff. Uh, so we're Which gonna is one see of the reasons of the insurance question is significant. I mean, one of many. Absolutely. Right. Right. So and we're also just going to see them trying to obscure where the oil has come from by, you know, changing ownership, uh, changing flags, transferring oil between ships at sea. There's all kinds of hijinks that they can get up to. Um, so, you know, it remains to be seen how widespread sort of this sort of sanctions uh, evading behavior is, um, but that'll have a big impact on, you know, how much effect it has on Russia's bottom line. And there are other, there are other major, um, countries that are not part of this group, India, China, others. That's absolutely true. So yes. And that's something that the countries who are part of it have been planning for. And they've been saying, basically, that's fine. That's a, that's almost a good thing because again, we don't want this oil entirely off the market. But by having this very public price cap that we're all enforcing, we're going to give them the leverage in their maybe private negotiations with Russia to say, hey, like, you can't charge me 70 bucks a barrel because you don't have any other options to sell it for more than 60. So, you know, cut me a deal here. Uh, so even if we don't see that publicly, what, you know, you're, you hear Janet Yellen saying is that they're hoping that that kind of conversation is going to be happening privately and continue again to just shave off those profits. Can I can I pause here? I'd like to ask each of you a question about this moral process question than anything else. So, Esther, 
you did not come to us with deep knowledge of oil markets, right? I mean, maybe you were like me. Every time I hear Brent crude, I think of a like a soccer player with a pop collar, and and it doesn't feel to me like like a, a common kind of kind of oil. Um, how do you how do you go about studying this stuff? How do you go about preparing? I mean, not only are you writing the TMD about this tomorrow, but clearly just based on what you've just said. You've you've made yourself, I mean, expert, maybe not, but you certainly talk like somebody who knows a lot about what you're what you're reporting on. What was the process there? Yeah. Well, I distinctly remember, you know, several years ago now, but not that long ago, looking at my dad and saying, "Uh, so what is OPEC? Like, I remember having that conversation. So definitely have come a long way from there. Uh, And. Honestly, you know, just the more I write about it, about this stuff in TMD, and the more I talk to the smartest people who I can get on the phone and ask them all of my questions, the smart ones and the dumb ones. Also, uh, a couple of months ago, it was a Friday night, probably about 11 p.m. I was working on a story about uh, wheat futures in Ukraine because I'm extremely cool and that's what I do on Friday nights. And I, I just, <laughs> just got can down we just, the can we just be clear that this, this was not a requirement from us? No, here. we did not say you need to do this. No weekend fun for you. <laughs> yes, yes, this is firmly my problem. And I did end up impulse buying a book about commodities traders that I have since been reading again in my spare time. Um, And I have just been fascinated by all the shenanigans that they get up to good and bad and the geopolitical impact. So on this story in particular, yeah, it just happened by me being deeply cool and getting very interested. (laughs) So we have a question from John Lawton about this. Doesn't an artificial price cap on Russian oil make it more desirable to customers not less. I suppose it, it. You could argue that part of the answer to that question would be which customers, but beyond that, what's your what's your thought? Yeah. So I mean, that's a fair point, right? Like it's at a discount. Um, one of the reasons, one of the things that mitigates that is just what's called overcompliance with sanctions. So. The U.S. in particular has really used this as a as a tactic. They've often left sanctions sort of the boundaries vague enough that companies that are not wanting to run afoul of the U.S. draw really far back from whatever the line is. So in this case, you know, there's the potential that uh, companies who don't want to get in trouble decide we're just not going to we're not going to handle Russian seaborne crude at all. Um that's not super likely on this one, but there is there is the possibility that people will be extra cautious. And actually, U.S. regulators have been messaging really hard to try to avoid that because they do want Russian crude to stay on the market. So they've been saying, hey, we're not going to be all up on you on this one. If you're operating in good faith, it's going to be OK. Um, but yeah, so overcompliance, just because people don't want the trouble of sanctions um, is a big one. And then also when oil carries more risks like this or any commodity more risks. Um, So in this case, it might be the risk of, you know, sanctions changing again tomorrow and suddenly you have to figure that out or just you have to travel farther because Europe is no longer buying seaborne crude. So you have to ship it farther. Maybe you have to go to an insurance company that isn't as good as the Europe-based ones. There are 
other insurance companies out there, but they don't have as deep pockets. All those sorts of things just add to the cost for um, the traders handling this fuel. So some of them are going to do it anyway, and they're going to figure out ways to make a profit. But there are other sort of hidden expenses that come along with something like this. What is the uh, sign or poster over your left shoulder? Oh, uh, that is uh, an Unor poster. It means February in Czech, and it is a little bit of uh, Czech Communist Party propaganda. It represents the coup that brought that party to power in that country. Uh, it's a gift from my mother, who spent some time stationed in Germany when she was in the army. And uh, it's just, you know, it's my personal little reminder that uh, communism has failed every time it was tried, kids. So, just okay, so you are not a communist. That's so far. We were just clarifying, no. <laughs> right? N not yet. This was a question from from uh, Paul Zimmerman. Um, not to worry. Good. Uh, thank you for that. I'm um, looking at a couple of these other questions. Is it possible that the cumulative ages of the three brilliant TD reporters is less than Steve's age? Sure isn't. It's not. <laughs> um, although it's funny that you that you asked that question, because just before we started, I said, I bet the cumulative age of the three reporters is not 75. I literally had this conversation with my wife and kids before coming up there. Is that right? I think that could be close there. And I'm not yet 75. How old are not you? Really, not really that close. Uh, I'm 22. Classified information. Classified information. All right. Well, yeah. I guess we'll never know. Uh, I'm about to turn 28. I'm not there yet. I think we're close. I think we're in the ballpark. Um, so I'm looking here at the New York Times uh, updates on the on the race. And as we imagined, it has tightened considerably uh, with 57 percent of the votes in, according to the Associated Press, Raphael Warnock. 50.5% 50 of the vote, and Herschel Walker has 49.5% of the vote. So very tight. It's unclear. I mean, certainly this in, in, involves um, the addition of lots of same-day vote. Republicans typically do well uh, in same-day vote. They appear to have done well here. Um, Andrew, anything about that, about those numbers that, that surprise you? Yeah, so I, I uh, have been listening dutifully uh, to what Esther and Price have been talking about, but I've also been a little bit poking around on Twitter uh, to to see what you know what people are thinking about the different the different buckets of votes that are coming in right now. The narrative that seems to be developing, at least this was true as of the last time I did this, like ten minutes ago, uh, is that it is close, but there is a little bit of a doom drumbeat for Walker, at least as far as um, most of the geographical state is concerned. He's doing quite well in the rural areas where he's expected to do quite well. It doesn't look like he's making up much ground uh, in some of those, you know, suburban, smaller cities, uh, suburban areas and smaller cities. Um, a lot of counties coming in where he's just a point or two under where he was in the general election. Uh, and so I think the big outstanding question right now is just kind of where Democratic turnout is going to be at when we get the kind of the the, the biggest batch of Atlanta votes. Um, and that's kind of an open question. I mean, like, who, who knows? Like, there was a ton of early voting. Um, 
and, and, you know, enthusiasm was high. I don't know whether, you know, enthusiasm, enthusiasm for Democrats is as high now as it was in 2020 when, you know, Stop the Steal was an unbelievable, you know, uh, rocket fuel for, for both Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, uh, and when control of the Senate was in the balance. So it, so that's the, the biggest TBD. I will say, I don't know what happened here. Sometimes these things are just kind of flukes. Um, but, uh, but the needle swung in the last like two minutes on the New York times website. And here we are live, live calling the needle, but, uh, you know, it was like 66% Walker and now it seems like it's, uh, or I'm sorry, 66% Warnock. And now it, uh, seems like it's completely lost its mind. It went straight to toss up and then it just vanished. It blinked out. It says waiting for estimates now. And with 58% of the votes in, uh, on the New York times website, Herschel Walker has taken an extremely slim lead. So there you go. Uh, lead change, lead change. We got our. I will be surprised. Game. I will. I will acknowledge. I will be surprised if if Herschel Walker uh, pulls this out. It's not what I've expected. Certainly not what the people I've talked to uh, have expected, including people who worked on the race um, and, and are firmly in Herschel Walker's corners. Insofar as they w- would like to have another Republican vote um, in the Senate, but that would be a, a surprising result. Um, Esther, anything else you can? preview for us uh about tomorrow's morning dispatch the the oil cap is the main item yes and it is a solo item day tomorrow so there's not another item to preview i mean as always there's going to be lots of news some of the topics that are coming up uh we're probably going to be writing about haiti we're probably going to be writing about that power outage in north carolina um, and some of the other vulnerabilities of our critical infrastructure. Uh, so, you know, stay tuned. going to be lots of excitement, but uh, yeah, we'll see. Okay. We have, uh, b- before we let um, Price and Esther go, we have a question from Reed. I don't, I'll probably pronounce that wrong. Bennett, um, who writes dad question for the kids. And I assume that's, he doesn't mean me, even though I am a kid. How is it possible to make a living in journalism, eat nothing but peanut butter and ramen? I ask because I am a friend of the profession. Who wants to take this? We welcome all personal finance tips. Uh, Andrew at the dispatch.com is my email address. Uh, no, I mean, I think uh, we, I feel like we're pretty, we're, 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 we're pretty lucky. We're doing okay. We got, we got subscribers. We got some revenue coming in. We're not, we're not scrapping, uh, you know, for the the droppings from the table of Twitter and Facebook and Google, like most ad driven publications are, we, you know, we started off a certain size and then we got some subscribers that let us grow to a little bit bigger. And then we got some more subscribers, let us grow a little bit more, a little bit bigger. And at no point in any of that was it like, well, you know, you have to hit a certain number of subscribers before you're allowed to pay rent. Um, we just... <laughs> have been able to, I mean, I don't know, I'm sure we could be making a lot more money doing something else. If any of you know what that would be, you could also let me know. Cause I don't I actually same email address. Yep. Andrew at the dispatch.com. Um, but, uh, but no, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear horror stories, uh, but I have not experienced any of them here. I'd say. Yes. Yeah. The, Go ahead, Esther. The corny, but true answer is of course we make a living in journalism because you guys show up and, read and listen to and pay for what we put out. So, you know, thank you very much. Disclaimer that, uh, that 
contract discussion season is coming up, none of what I said before can be used against me uh, <laughs> if and when I anger for a race. Yeah, there's so many things I, I'm tempted to say right now, and I'm probably, Prudence suggests I shouldn't say any of them. <laughs> I will add to, to whoever asked this question, all of what Andrew and Esther said is true. And also, I think regardless of, uh, you know, finance, finances, peanut butter is good. Incorporate more peanut butter into your diet. Stir it in your oatmeal. Put it in your smoothies. True. This is good. It's just a good tip for life. So. I'm with you. Good tip yeah. for life. Well, with with the good tip for life, uh, we thank you, Price, and thank you, Esther. Price, I think you can probably go and put your piece to bed if it's not already done. Esther, I'm guessing you have more work ahead of you. So thank you, especially for spending some extra time with us tonight. Thank you. See you all. Andrew and I will stay and answer some questions. Um, before and, we before and we follow some more of this, Steve, can I can I say one thing? About I mean, my depends what depends what you're going to say. Well, so <laughs> I just I'm sitting here. I'm I'm watching these uh, results come in. Um, you know, again, I'm just watching the needle on Herschel and Raphael Warnock, uh, and I'm like I'm contemplating the possibility because I did write the piece. You know. 90% tell, so so before you even go there, tell tell people how this happens. I mean, you pre-write some of the piece. We call it B matter. Um, and it's some of the stuff sort of, you know, maybe a third of the way down it would start. And it sort of characterizes the race and includes the reporting you've done. What, how, how do you go about writing that? And what do you do if you lean into a piece thinking that you're going to get one outcome and the other outcome uh, is reality? Well, so this time it was a little easier because I, the the piece was going to come out the day after the the uh, runoffs and was going to you know have the information about who won and everything like that. But the the primary thing, I mean, and we talked a lot about this. The primary thing I was writing about was you know what kind of Herschel's positioning ahead of the runoffs kind of meant as the first. Uh, Republican campaign to be run after the midterms, after all the data we got from the midterms, and particularly the data we got about, um, you know, how how Trump's handpicked candidates did in the midterms, you know, what that meant uh, kind of strategically and, and how he was recalibrating and, and what voters were thinking about him and about Trump and all this stuff. So all that is fine. I mean, all that all that's going to be almost word for word, uh, regardless of who wins. And that'll be the bulk of, of the piece. Um, I uh, there are times when that is very much not the case uh, on election night. Uh, Last month, we were all at the office uh, until late, late, late at night. And at about midnight, I uh, turned to our executive editor, Adam. I was like, uh, the stuff I have is not usable because uh, we had all been kind of under the impression that uh, uh, basically we'd been, we'd been writing for a long time about the Republican argument that uh, abortion as policy favored the Democrats, uh, but that in a lot of uh issue polling, you were seeing that it wasn't rising for too many voters to the level of being the decisive thing, um, that, that voters still primarily cared about the economy and that that was a winning Republican message. And that was kind of the main uh, Republican argument for why they expected a red wave. Um, and I, I bought that. I thought that was going to be the case from the data that, that that abortion wasn't going to matter as much. And that was kind of the perspective from which I'd written the piece. Uh, and then that ended up, as the evening went on, 
being shown less and less and less and less true to the point where, you know, the amount of usable stuff I had pre-written was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And, and it was like, look, we got to put a pin in this. I got to, I got to start this from scratch. Got to write about abortion for later in the week. And I wrote a completely different piece between midnight and 2am on a completely different topic that had presented itself, um, you know, from, from the, from the results. Um, the thing I wanted to say about this particular piece is I have, I have, I have a worry now about it, Steve. And the worry that I have about it is that if Herschel Walker wins, uh, you know, we're, we at the dispatch have, have never been, uh, Donald Trump's favorite conservative publication. Uh, he's never been our favorite Republican public figure. Um, and I fret that all this stuff I wrote about how, you know, from my reporting, uh, Trump just didn't matter all that much to this runoff, uh, which I thought was ameliorating, expecting a Warnock win. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to publish this piece and people are going to be like, well, of course, you know, Trump's guy wins. And here you come saying he didn't have anything to do with it. And that's just that just kind of bums me out a little bit. You know, what well, I mean? uh, so uh, we'll have our we'll have our our editor writer discussion right here on Dispatch Live. <laughs> so I don't care what people think uh, if you think it's true. Now, if the piece, if the outcome changes, Herschel Walker wins and it changes the way that you approached the piece or provides different context for the reporting that you got, then we should hold the piece and not run it at all um, or give you time to rethink or call your sources again. Then we can run a piece Thursday or we can run a piece Friday. That's fine. We're not going to publish something because it we don't we are i think in some ways unique in that we don't feel the need to fill a news hole um because something happened today if it takes another day or another two days to understand it better and provide try to provide that understanding for uh our members we'll wait we'll just hold it so i read uh the new york times preview of the race shortly before we started here tonight and they had an interesting um, way of casting the Trump question, um, which was made even more interesting by your terrific reporting. What, whatever happens, the reporting is great reporting. I mean, you did you did a really good job, I think, with the with the the way that you approached the piece and the questions that you asked, and the, and frankly, the, the the responses that you got from voters. Um, the Times said, wondered sort of aloud. Um, Reed Epstein, I think it was the reporter, whether Trump was in some ways in a no-win situation going into this. Because on the one hand, if Warnock loses, everybody's going to look at Donald Trump and say Georgia was this outlier state. I mean, some of the points that you made earlier, Trump couldn't knock off Kemp. He, you know, sort of was in early on Herschel Walker, but then Mitch McConnell supported Herschel Walker and the Senate Republicans supported Herschel Walker. So it wasn't like he wasn't a Trump handpicked. I mean, he was a Trump handpicked candidate. He certainly Trump goaded Walker into the race. I don't think a lot of people were thinking about Herschel Walker as a Senate candidate before Donald Trump was thinking about him as a Senate candidate. Um, but it wouldn't be. Um, in in that sense, if Herschel Walker won, it wouldn't be this triumph for Donald Trump, in particular because Walker's team made it very clear in the weeks before this runoff that they didn't want Trump around. Um, there was talk immediately after the November elections when it became clear that there was going to be a runoff about whether Trump would come to Georgia and do a rally. And the... Um, I don't know if uh, I can't say Walker's campaign team, 
sent this message, but certainly people close to Walker and people advising Senate Republicans about how to win sent unmistakable messages to Donald Trump and his team that he was not welcome in Georgia. They did not want him in Georgia. They didn't want a rally. They wanted him to stay in Florida. They'd love it if he would raise money um, or contribute to, you know, ad purchases, what, you know, what have you, but they didn't really want him involved. And so the time, the way the times framed the question was, is there a way Trump wins this? I would say if Walker prevails, Trump will claim it as a win and will be somewhat justified in claiming it as a win. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and, so the conventional wisdom, right, um, is that the, is that the the whole race is 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 kind of the final um, referendum on you know one of Trump's handpicked guys, right? Um, and I I don't know, like I, I can see that argument. I almost and and I guess I can now say this, uh, you know, uh, argument against interest uh, with uh, with with Walker in the lead, but it almost seems to me that that. Uh, that Trump is Trump is better off with a Walker loss because because the uh, because of all the reasons that you mentioned because of the um, the way that he has really run I mean he 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 doesn't talk about Trump he didn't talk about Trump on the campaign trail uh, d- during the general election and during the runoff yeah, um, he didn't he didn't bring up election integrity and and I think like the the, the Walker loss it's it will be coded if he does lose as a loss for Trump but I I mean. It, it seems far more clear t- to me that that if Herschel Walker loses, it will be c- because of his own personal vulnerabilities as a candidate. I mean, there's none of the Republican disunity that you saw in 2020 that really tied an anchor around David Perdue and Kelly Leffler and was the reason they both lost as uh, that is because of Donald Trump and Stop the Steal and the impossible situation he left them in uh, where they just could not possibly, uh, uh, you know, appeal to both the MAGA base and uh, suburbanites in and around Atlanta. Um, he left them no option. Uh, that hasn't happened. I mean, it just hasn't happened in, in in Georgia. I don't know why it hasn't happened this year. I mean, Trump has gone after candidates for far smaller slights than for very, you know, for, for telling him not to come to Georgia and then leaking that they did that. Um, I, the only thing I can think but of is there's no win for friends. him. I mean, no, there's there's no win for for Trump there, right? If Trump, well, there will were, be. I mean, if Herschel loses, you could expect to see him. I mean, yeah, maybe but 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 preemptively, I mean, before today, before the results, there's there's no upside whatsoever in in Trump lashing out if he's thinking at all strategically, and mm-hmm. we should stipulate that that sometimes it's not evident that he's thinking strategically. If he's thinking at all strategically, there's no upside in 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 sabotaging or 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 um spiking Herschel Walker's bid preemptively because he wasn't invited to come to Georgia. Now, Trump has done these things before, so it, it and was recently, possible. I mean, I mean it was possible. The, 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 the there are a couple pieces. I mean, the just in this just in these midterms, uh Joe O'Day in Colorado, not Trumpy, but the kind of guy who, if he were in the Senate and Donald Trump became president again, would be a vote for his agenda. Uh and he savaged him, you know, going yeah, into but, the election. But I would it, say that's different. O'Day well, and, O'Day and, said he wouldn't support Trump and doesn't think Trump should run again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Trump is Trump is never gonna let that slide. Right. The, the other thing was sort of a quiet Hey, why don't, the weather's better in Florida right now than Georgia, isn't it, mm-hmm. Mr. President? 
Right, right. No, that's true. The other analog I was going to bring up though was was Don Bold Bold. I always forgot how to pronounce his name. Bolduck, Bolduck mm-hmm. in New Hampshire, um, where Trump endorses him. You know, about a week before the a week before the general election, but he can't help putting in his endorsement of the guy. You know, ah, he's really moderated on some of this yeah. stop the steal stuff. I really don't think that's such a good idea, Don. You know, you'd do a lot better if you stuck to your guns. On the, and then and then obviously when he loses, he comes out and 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 is like, I knew it all along. You know, if only he had stuck with that, he would have done great. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I think that the, the primary thing and I again, I, I wrote about this uh, in, in the piece that's going up tomorrow. I was just struck by how little Trump was around. I mean, voters didn't didn't bring him up. Um, some of them were happy to talk about him, but, you know, didn't weren't plainly weren't taking their cues from him as far as like, I mean, they all of them liked him. He, he, he would still get cheers if like a guy who was introducing uh, uh, Walker would bring him up. Um, but but didn't seem like they were com- like dead set on him being the guy in 2024. Um, a lot of people said they'd prefer somebody else in 2024. And, and I mean, I think a big part of the narrative, if Walker does win, is, and I said this at the beginning of the call, just 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 how much weight Brian Kemp threw behind him. Um, and yeah. and and I mean, Walker made Kemp his main surrogate for this runoff. I mean, there's no question about it. He was front and center and uh, and and Trump wasn't around. Trump did a tele-rally for, for Walker supporters on Monday night. So uh, so the, the, the question, is it good or is it bad for Trump? I mean, it's an important question. Like it matters. But I think like the thing that 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 struck me so much is how you almost saw this as as you, you could treat it as like a post-Trump election, which is such a strange thing to say when he was president just two years ago and is running for president again now. But just, yeah. just how small his shadow is right now on the ground. Obviously, Georgia's a weird state. Georgia had that primary that 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 really showed the limit of his reach and kind of gave gave Republicans some ability to maneuver. Um, but I mean, even given that, I was surprised by. by so that thesis, which is the, the sort of the heart of this piece of, of yours that you've prepared for us, I think that thesis holds regardless of the outcome. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it, it it was a post-Trump race. I mean, certainly Warnock tried to make Trump a factor. Democrats elevate Trump at every turn. They remind voters that Trump is a Republican, that Herschel Walker is a Republican, that they were close, that this should scare people. Um, So he he was a factor in that sense, but he didn't sort of hover over the race in the way that he's hovered over our politics for the past seven years. He really was more of an afterthought. Republicans, certainly, certainly it's the case that the Republicans, I mean, Trumpy Republicans, um, Herschel Walker, as as we said moments ago, was picked by Trump, even if he at the end of the campaign didn't didn't do the f- full embrace of Trump. It's notable that he didn't do the full embrace of Trump. So in that sense, I think the the thesis of of your piece that this feels more like a post Trump election than a Trump centric election is certainly true. Can I can I real quick jump over to one of the comments over here that I just noticed from Eric? Uh, the question is, what would Kemp get out of a Walker win? Like, and and people have been surprised to see this, right? I mean, because he did keep him at he was so careful about not getting too close to Herschel during the general election, and then immediately became his biggest booster. I think I think it's primarily the possibility of yet another extremely impressive victory lap that just kind of raises his, his his profile as a Republican who can win. I mean, the the win over David Perdue was a statement win for Brian Kemp. The win over Stacey Abrams was a statement win for Brian Kemp. And if he had been if he were able to pull Herschel Walker over the finish line after having it already demonstrated 
Kemp voters are who Herschel needs. And then if he were able to go out and say, actually, my Kemp voters, please go vote for Herschel Walker. I think he'll be great. Uh, and they do. I mean, that would be like a, a remarkable thing. The other the other angle or the other element of that and the reason why it's it's matters so much. And I wrote about this a week or two ago uh, for the site is the the Georgia Republican Party uh, is is very Trumpy. They were they were all in on on the stop the steal lawsuits in 2020 and everything. They were all uh very implicitly behind and some much less implicitly behind David Perdue's primary challenge. Um, and Kemp kind of responded to that by completely sidelining the state party and and building up his own political operation with the benefit of a, a new law, a new election law, a new kind of campaign committee that allows him uh, in his personal capacity connected with his campaign to basically raise and spend unlimited sums in coordination with his campaign. So basically like the good parts of a super PAC and it's a campaign thing. Um, it's a state, new state law. And that he was able to, at a moment where many of the huge Republican donors in the, in the state were uh, super unhappy with the party, didn't see it as a, a safe place to park their election money anymore. Um, Cause they're like, this money isn't going to help Republicans win. It's, it's chasing after these insane lawsuits. Right. Then Brian Kemp is able to come along and say, well, look, just give it to my committee. Uh, isn't that what you want to see to see uh, Georgia stay in Republican hands here? You can just, you know, just fund this. And then he stands up an operation that is function similar in function to the stuff a state party usually does. You know, all of the on the ground stuff, the door knocking and the phone calling and stuff. Uh, and then after he wins his election, he immediately takes that whole operation, all that all those people he's already got on payroll, flips them over to Mitch McConnell, says, here, you run this run this show now. Take like with that entire political machine for Herschel Walker. So if Walker pulls it out, uh, unbelievable amount of credit accrues to Kemp. Um, you know, just just in terms of the anal the analysis of the whole thing, he will have essentially gift wrapped the race. Yeah, I mean, um, I would say in terms of politics, I would say for for people who who have looked at Kemp as um, you know somebody who deserves credit for having stood up to to Donald Trump to the to the election crazy um, to to have been a a, a good governor. If you look at Herschel Walker and you think he's a crummy candidate, and I do, um, yeah, did Kemp have to do everything he did? I mean, he, he's been a you know he's been a good conservative, but not always a loyal Republican. I think that that's a record that he can be proud of. Um, you know, is his support for Herschel Walker? I guess you know the argument, the the pro Kemp argument would be, of course, he had to do it. It's a Senate race; it's a runoff he had to win yeah if you find herschel walker unqualified or um somebody who doesn't belong in the senate it's not it's not that great but mm -hmm. purely in terms of politics yeah i think kemp has proven that he's a he, he's a powerful guy i mean and and it will be interesting to see to your point about this balance between the state party and these um specific candidate specific uh organizations in other states where there are splits, I'm not sure that there are states where the splits are as profound as the ones that we've seen in, in Georgia, although I'm sure I'll remember. Um, I mean, Arizona, I guess, with Ducey and the state party to a certain extent, but I don't think that Ducey quite had the operation that, that Kemp does. Will we see, is this, a, is this something that we would expect to see in the future? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, yeah. the, if the state parties are going away from sort of Trumpy, mm -hmm. um, a Trumpy infrastructure, will we see 
governors and others use their organizations to perform the functions of the state party without actually having to to be part of the state party. Mm-hmm. One one thing on the on the Ducey Kemp uh, contrast, um, because I'm not I'm not sure Ducey would have survived. Uh, I mean, he's term term limited, so it was it was moot. But I'm not sure if he had run for re-election again and Trump had stood up somebody against him. I'm not sure he would have survived it. And I think that one thing that that Georgia Republicans and and the Kemp team don't get enough credit for is how much SB 202, the election law that they passed last year. Um, took the wind out of the sails of the people who were still, you know, kind of kind of really worked up about the 2020 election uh, in the state. I mean, his his approval rating was quite low. There are all kinds of uh, Kemp's that is there are all kinds of reasons why it recovered. He, 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 he always had the capability of recovering because of just how reliably conservative he had been on so many other things. But they passed this election law that basically everybody, you know, heritage uh, scored it very highly, you know, basically says Georgia's got the tightest, uh, you know, hardest to cheat elections in the in the country now. And they, it's like at the, at the top of their scorecard. Um, and and they they messaged the heck out of it. They got bludgeoned by Joe Biden and national Democrats about it. Um, you know, the the whole Jim Crow 2.0 stuff was all about this this law. Mm-hmm. Um, they were basically I right on the merits of, I mean, they, they, they were unfairly attacked by a lot of national Democrats in a way that uh, kind of coded them to anybody who was maybe sympathetic to, to the stop the steal stuff, but was still gettable. Um, like, oh, uh, maybe there was uh, some cheating in the 2020 election, but Brian Kemp and Republicans have done stuff to make sure that can't happen anymore. So yeah. why do why do I hate that guy again? You know, and and that really did make a difference. I mean, like I don't he he maybe still beats David Perdue uh, if they didn't do that, but I don't think he beats David Perdue by fifty points, which was yeah. like the most unbelievable outcome. I mean, nobody saw that coming. Uh, and nobody anywhere. Brian Brian Kemp didn't see that coming. I mean, they were. I mean, by were, the end of the race, we all saw it coming, right? We all but saw not by fifty, not by, 50 I mean, yeah, but I mean, by they, a lot. Yeah, they thought they thought they were gonna feel like win by ten and feel great about it. I mean, that was the that was what the campaign thought. Um, and they did not, that did not happen. They won by a lot. Well, well, it's nine Oh four. Uh, we started, I think three or four minutes late. We'll end three or four minutes late. Andrew, thank you for going to Georgia and bringing us up to speed on what happened down there. We leave and the, um, the tally, according to the, to the associated press with 73% of the vote in Raphael Warnock has (laughs) 50.02. Herschel Walker has 49.98 and Gabriel Sterling, who is a, uh, a, a, I think, a repeat guest on Dispatch Podcast and someone that our reporters have talked to. Uh, He's a spokesman for the uh, Secretary of State's office or was a spokesman. I don't know if he's still uh, a COO for the Georgia Secretary of State is his current position. Just tweeted, it looks like a long night ahead. But this is why we count the voters' votes. So it's effectively a tie. It's going to be a late night. Um, Andrew, good luck with your piece. I got my morning shift covered, so I'll be. I'll, <laughs> guess I'll just stay up and figure out what's going on. I don't have my morning shift covered, so <laughs> I will be there at five thirty, uh, and I won't see you there. All right. Thanks all. Thanks all for joining. Uh, we'll see you again next Tuesday. Good night.